The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and and our our daily daily lives. This This is is Geotech Wars. everybody, this episode is with Mark Zandi, who will focus on the broader economic trends we are facing in the US and globally as a consequence of the geotech wars we have been unpacking in this podcast. So Andrew and I are really excited to welcome you, Mark. Quick introduction, Mark Zandi is the chief economist of Moody's Analytics and the co-founder of Economy.com, which was purchased by Moody's in 2005. He's also on the board of directors of MGIC, the nation's largest private mortgage insurance company, and the lead director of Reinvestment Fund, one of nation's largest community development financial institutions. Mark, I've always enjoyed following your work. And, you know, I just want to mention the couple of books you've written, Paying the Price, Ending the Great Recession and Beginning of the New American Century, and also Financial Shock, 360 Look at the Subprime Mortgage Implosion and How to Avoid the Next Financial Crisis. So with that, welcome, Mark, and let's rock and roll. Andrew, over to you. Thanks, Kirti. It's great to be here with both of you. Mark, I want to kick this off by asking, are we entering a deglobalization period and If so, how have demographic transitions, slower immigration, and growing U.S. energy independence pushed this along? Curdy, Andrew, it's uh, really a pleasure to be with you. Just one point on my uh, resume there. I did roll off the board of reinvestment fund. I'm going to have to change that bio. I'd been on reinvestment fund for, I don't know, 20 years, and I was the lead director for, I don't know, five, but they have term limits. It's kind of bittersweet, but I had to roll up. I'm on other boards, but none that I think we need to go into for sake of disclosure. Entirely up to you, but it's very good to be with you. And there's a lot to unpack in that question, Andrew. I'll just begin by saying, yes, we are deglobalizing pretty quickly, I'd say, disengaging primarily with China and I think that's the result of a number of factors, but you know, things that stand out would include the pandemic. I think that helped facilitate the move away from China. China's no COVID policy was quite disruptive and it only came to an end at the end of last year. And the global economy is still struggling a bit with that, still adjusting to that. And then of course, the uh, tensions between US and China have been building for quite some time, even all the way back to the Obama administration. There was a lot of concern about the relationship and President Obama's strategy was Trans-Pacific Partnership, the free trade deal. You remember that deal with Pacific Rim nations that excluded China and China could not enter in until they played fair. And uh, that was uh, Obama's strategy. That got completely blown apart by President Trump. I I can't remember. It might've been his first executive order, maybe second one after getting out of the Paris Accord. It was one of those first... Uh, priorities, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. You campaigned against it. Yeah, and so since then, it's been all downhill in our relationships with China. If there's one thing Republicans and Democrats can agree on, and there's very few things they can, is they don't like China. So we are disengaging, deglobalizing, and policies now being put into place, CHIPS Act being the most notable, most recent, that is facilitating this deglobalization. So I think we're on our way. We are quickly disengaging. I don't see that changing, at least not anytime soon. Over to you, Kirti. I want to ask you that same question. What do you think about this deglobalizing period? 
So Andrew, I and Mark, I completely agree with you. I see this, you know, from the vantage point of the industry I'm most experienced in semiconductor chips, where the process of deglobalization has clearly begun, right? It's the most noticeable because we are seeing the US and Europe and many other countries passing the CHIPS Act subsidies to reshore and friendshore the manufacturing of chips back to the United States or allied nations and bring some resiliency to not be fully dependent on China and Taiwan and the rest of the Asia Pacific. But that essentially means, you know, we are obviously adding some redundancy in the system for resiliency. But I also think that the semiconductor industry is just the tip of the iceberg, right? It has a ripple effect because it's a foundational technology. So we see a lot of manufacturing moving out of China into other regions in consumer electronics, but it's not limited to that either. We see that in chemicals, in aviation, in medical devices, across industries. Andrew, do you have a different view or do you have a similar view on deglobalization? I'm with both of you. I think all the signs point to the exact things that you're saying. And, you know, I think the point you made, Mark, which, you know, is worth underscoring is is that the one bipartisan value right now in Washington is that both Democrats and Republicans don't like China very much. I think we can't forget about that in this conversation. So is that the consensus now? Because I thought there was some debate out there with regard to whether we were deglobalizing, but now increasingly feels like that's the consensus view. I think so, Kirti. Yeah. And I think the question is how much in the spectrum and how fast? And is there an opportunity to build a moat around the system? So, you know, like small pool, high fences kind of approach where you do this only for certain kinds of critical technologies, but still allow the process of globalization to reap the rewards it has been reaping for decades. Or are we going to let this run out of control, which, you know, has, to me, massive economic consequences for all of us? Let me ask both of you, are the cheap and abundant resources of the U.S. enough to sustain the type of manufacturing renaissance that's currently underway in the United States? I think so. I mean, you know, we can't do it without resources, uh, you know, various types of commodities, metals, uh, other products from other parts of the world. So, you know, it's not that we can manufacture without those trading relationships. But I do think we have a very vibrant manufacturing base that now is growing very rapidly. I mean, if you look at investment in manufacturing structures, factories, it's actually booming. Uh, and that goes to the reshoring that's going on here. And we do have some resources that are quite in abundance. You know, Obviously, with the fracking revolution in the energy sector, we have abundant oil and particularly natural gas. Natural gas is perhaps the most important energy source for a lot of different manufacturing activities. And we're paying, last I looked, we're paying $2, $2.50 per million BTU. And of course, Europe is paying you know 10 times that probably. And that's down from where it was in the wake of the Russian war in Ukraine. So yeah, I think we can have a very viable manufacturing base. You know, obviously, it needs to be a little bit more higher value added, a little less labor intensive than other types of manufacturer. But I think We have the resources that we need, the talent that we need, the capital that we need, the energy that we need to have a strong, viable, growing manufacturing base. How's AI going to affect that, though? That's all anybody can talk about these days. I know. It's it's amazing. You know what's so weird, Andrew? I bet you can tell I've been an economist for a long time. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. Sure. 
I started a company, I sold to Moody's that Curdy mentioned back 30 plus years ago. My first project was for a bank. The bank was the breaking down of interstate banking. And this bank wanted, if you didn't go out and acquire other banks, you were toast, you were going to be acquired. But you had to get permission from regulators, the Federal Reserve. And one of the criteria for allowing acquisition was, are you discriminating in your lending? In this case, mortgage lending. And the bank hired me to figure out whether they were discriminating in mortgage lending. And I used a neural net, you know, back 35 years ago. Of course, it was on this old compact machine that shook when it did calculations. <laughs> but that was, that's AI. That was AI. So it's been around a long time. So, you know, I, yeah. I view AI as tremendous promise. And obviously, it's now, you know, kicking into gear here, you know, very quickly. And it's going to have meaningful impacts. But I, I'm, you know, a little suspicious about is the bright, shiny thing at the moment. And, you know, it's probably going to take a lot longer to diffuse in the economy than we all think it will be. Because that's the case with most technologies, I think. Once you see the technology go, oh, yeah, that should be everywhere now. But it takes years, even decades for that technology to diffuse. In fact, it's really only when new companies form and optimize around the new technology that those technologies are actually, you know, brought to full use. The other thing I'd point out, by the way, this is just my own personal experience using AI at Moody's. And we are all in on AI at Moody's, as you can imagine, given what we do, it's hard to make useful. And in fact, it, I'd say it's counterproductive, hurts productivity growth, at least right now, you know, when you're trying to figure it out. I mean, it's slowing things down, let me tell you. And we're spending a lot of resources on it. So it's important and it's going to matter. And it's going to be, you know, I think a source of productivity gains in the future. But I don't think it's the game changing thing that's going to, you know, happen here over the next year or two or three. This is over the next decade, two or three. My sense of it. So just go a little bit further on this. You know, we're hearing deep experts on AI, including the father of AI, say things like, if you ask AI in the not too distant future, please make me money, AI could do some pretty dangerous things in pursuit of that goal. I'd like to ask both of you, what are your thoughts on that? Kurt, do you want to go, you want to take that? I've been saying a lot already. Look, I would, I mean, I think it's wise to be concerned right now. I think it's, you know, it's regenerative. It's unpredictable the way it's learning. It's learning fast. And we are engaged in this geopolitical technological competition race that's accelerating some of the progress here that's not managed very well. And by the way, you know, to your previous point, Andrew, I do want to offer a different perspective, Mark, and, you know, happy to <laughs> disagree, Curdy. Go ahead. Tangle. Yeah, my wife yeah, disagrees. My son disagrees. <laughs> my father disagrees all the time. Yeah, I'm used to it. I'll, yeah. I'll add my I'm sure Andrew to the disagrees. So in, in, oh, yeah, go ahead. Far away. But I, I mean, I want to hear you. So look, I mean, in terms of our newfound love for manufacturing and reshoring, I do worry about that. I feel like, you know, to some extent, it's necessary to build resiliency. But going overboard and focusing too much on reshoring, bringing manufacturing back in the United States could be a dangerous distraction in a world where you live in a knowledge economy, right? You're leading, the United States has been leading in cutting edge technology, technological leadership. Take just semiconductor chips, for example, where this reshoring is happening. Where we lead the most is design, it's tools, it's R&D, it's the upper end of the spectrum, which takes 10 years for any country to build up and catch up. And it's becoming more and more important to lead there with new technologies and, you know, things like AI and quantum compute, which will define not just economic security, but also national security. Kirti, speaking of that, so what is our manufacturing renaissance? What does it mean for this growing tension with China? 
to a large extent from the entry point of the semiconductor industry, but I think not limited to that, it's driven by the desire to build more resiliency and more independence from China in an economy where the two have become entirely interdependent. You know, quite frankly, China goes down, we go down, right? Their sales go down. It affects our industry, our companies, our revenues, our wealth as a nation, as society. So to some extent, it is designed to be an independence that's necessary. And to a large extent, it's designed to be an independence that's critical for national security purposes, right? You absolutely don't want to depend on China, on technologies where national security is critical, like semiconductor chips and and other things like that. And it's a reasonable concern. But again, you know, if we go too far in our focus on, yes, let's do this manufacturing renaissance, we have limited resources as a nation and society like everybody does. We have to choose where our focus lies and we cannot dilute our focus on R&D, high-end scientific research, the foundation from which everything begins. Mark, what do you think about that? I don't know that I disagree. I mean, it might be just a matter of definition. I've always struggled with, you know, what is manufacturing anyway, <laughs> you know, and difference between that and services and R&D and because, you know, you can't disentangle these things completely. Even as you know, in the chip industry, you know, the hardware, the software, the design, the actual manufacturing, you know, everything is kind of jumbled all together. That's why I said, I think we want to focus on high value added kind of manufacturing activity. I think that might be the way to think about it. Why not? I mean, that's high value added. It produces a lot of wealth, creates a lot of jobs, income for middle-income Americans. I do think there is evidence that the hollowing out of the nation's manufacturing base when China did enter into the WTO in 2001, in that subsequent 10, 20-year period, that really did contribute to the significant skewing of the income and wealth distribution that occurred. And also, maybe I'm stretching it too far, but I would go far as to say it's had an impact on our politics. I think one of the reasons why we've had such discord in politics is because of the skewing of income and wealth distribution. That goes back to China's entry into the WTO and the wiping out of a big part of our manufacturing base, which were high middle income paying jobs. So I think that would argue, yeah, bring it back, You know, bring some of it back, bring the high value added stuff back, stuff that we do well. There's many other important reasons why you want to bring it back, you know, obviously resilience and security and, you know, independence, which we've learned clearly in the last few years, that's critical, not only because of our vexed relationship with China, but the pandemic made that also very clear. The other thing I'd say is I think companies should diversify their sources of a product instead of just being focused solely on China. Yes. Not a bad thing that it's now moving into Vietnam and Southeast Asia and other parts of the world back to Mexico and parts of South America, because again, we can see the risks involved with being too concentrated in our supply chains, you know, going into China. So I'm all in on this. I think it's a great thing. You know, there's some downsides and, you know, there, there will be some missteps, I'm sure, but I think this is the right kind of direction to go. Just back to Andrew, to your question on AI and the kind of the dark side. My answer to your question is, I don't know. You know, I don't know enough to know how dangerous it is. I do listen to the folks that seemingly should and probably do. And they're sending the the siren, the alarm bell. And that suggests to me, this is something where regulators, lawmakers really should pay a lot of attention and put the guardrails up as fast as possible to make sure that, you know, it's a difficult one because you want to make sure that, you know, bad stuff doesn't happen. But at the same time, you don't want to stunt innovation and change. Uh, so you got to, it's a pretty tricky thing to get right here, I think. But I'm all in on that. I just don't know the answer to 
how big a deal it is or how nefarious it potentially could be. Well, that's fair. I mean, it is hard to ignore the recent one-line statement curated by the Center for AI Safety, which is, you know, has signatories of top executives of the three leading AI companies, Sam Altman, the chief executive of OpenAI, chief executive of Google DeepMind, and the chief executive of Anthropic. The sentence statement was, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Kirti, I see you have a few views on that. I'm with it. I mean, I think I've said my piece, you know, it's regenerative, it's unpredictable, it's non-human, and it's learning in a way that we are not understanding of yet at a very large scale. (laughs) So it needs to be top priority. Okay, so we agree regulation is in order. Immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's no time to lose because this is like, you know, regulation always moves and policy way slower than technology does, right? Sure. Totally different paces, incompatible, but we don't have that luxury this time. All right, well, let's move on. Mark, I want to ask you if existing trends point towards a new era of higher inflation, what can the United States do to increase productivity growth across all sectors? Uh, another really big question to unpack. <laughs> you go right for the big question. We like to ask the big questions on this podcast. Yeah, I, a few things. I mean, on policy, a lot of it goes back, when you say what we can do, I think of policy. What policies can we put into place to help support stronger underlying trend productivity growth going forward. And I do think the policies that President Biden has put in place in his first two years help. I mean, the bipartisan infrastructure law helps. That is more money, more resources to improving our infrastructure from broadband to cleaner water, more reliable water uh, to ports and airports, seaports and so forth and so on. The CHIPS Act, I think, you know, that despite all its flaws, I mean, I think it's well-intentioned and will have a benefit of helping bring back chip production here. And I think that will help improve productivity ultimately. The Inflation Reduction Act, you know, tax incentives to go from fossil fuel to clean energy, because one of the major weights on productivity growth going forward will be the transition to a clean economy. That is going to happen. It will happen one way or the other, and it's going to be costly in a productivity sink. And I think the, you know, the policies put in place here are helpful in that regard. I think if I were king for a day, I might need a week, Andrew, to do this, but I would, I think at this point, focus like a laser beam on immigration reform. I do think, you know, those other things are focused on the public infrastructure and the capital stock. We also need to really focus on the labor force, both the kind of the growth in the labor force, but in terms of its productivity. And immigration has been shown to enhance productivity quite significantly for lots of reasons, allowing people who are working here illegally to find a way to, a path to citizenship so they can get jobs that are more consistent with their skill set would enhance their productivity and the nation's productivity significantly. Allowing you know the best and the brightest to come here and stay here. I mean, I, I find it bewildering, really, that we attract the best and the brightest to our universities and then don't make it easy for them to stay. I'd pin a visa on their forehead and say, stay as long as you would want, please. You know, we want you here. And just immigrants of all types, because, you know, by definition, they're risk takers. You know, you you don't pick up your family and leave one part of the world, come to another, even if it's the United States of America, without great intrepidation. I mean, that takes a lot of guts. And that's what it takes to start companies, start small businesses, be innovative and be out there and make change. And it makes our society stronger because it's more diverse and different points of view. 
and obviously our immigration policy is a complete mess and it's creating all kinds of chaos and havoc. We got to fix it. And the sad thing is we did have a pretty good piece of immigration reform legislation in place, got almost through the Senate. You know, there were a bunch of Senate Republicans that were supportive of it and this couldn't quite get it across the finish line, but there's one game-changing policy that we can make for this economy to lift long-term productivity growth and lift labor force growth and lift the economy's growth rate. It would be, uh, you know, a rational immigration policy. Kirti, please. So look, so completely agree. Let me go back to the inflation question. I think we need to make it very clear that now that we have entered this era of deglobalization after a glorious era of unconstrained globalization, where we enjoyed lowering prices, reducing prices across the board as consumers for decades, that's over. There's a structural shift now that means living with structurally higher inflation. How much more is a question, Mark, you and I can discuss and debate about, but no doubt that it goes up. At the same time, there is another trend that is adding to our economic woes, and that's labor supply shortage, uh, which is where immigration fits in. So right now, unemployment is at an all-time low, right? It's at 3.6%. What's the latest mark? 3.39. Okay, 3.4. So it's at an an all-time low. And, And yet, we have a labor shortage. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. You go to restaurants or airports or get your hair cut. There's a lack of labor supply in the economy. And by the way, let's make it concrete in economic terms. It means reduced GDP growth over time. So Andrew, before the pandemic, like the previous decades, there used to be four working Americans for every non-working American. After that pandemic, that number's gone down to 3.1, 3.2 maybe. And in the next 10 years, that number's going to go down to 2.1. It's a massive drop, and it means that the expected GDP growth, which was around 4% globally, you know, in the early part of 2000s, goes down to 2.5%. We are going to pay for this labor shortage in a real way, and one easy way out of this is immigration reform. So if we don't, both of you are suggesting, if we don't reform our immigration policies, and at the very least, have enhanced visa systems for skilled immigrants, we're really in trouble. Well, I'd go so far as to say is that what makes the United States economy exceptional is that we've attracted and welcomed immigrants since the founding of our nation. And if you look at other countries that take a different approach, like Japan, you know, for example, very cautious about immigration, you can see the difference in the dynamism of the economy and the growth rates in the economy. And so, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference if we don't fix our immigration problems pretty quickly. And they're going to get worse, you know, just because a lot of the immigrants obviously are coming from Central America, South America, and that's because their economies are busted. And because lots of reasons, obviously, but climate change is also playing a role there, wiping out, you know, a lot of their agricultural, you know, staples like coffee and other staples. So they have no livelihood and, you know, they are coming here as a result of economic need. So these are big challenges that we face. It's not only immigration reform here, we need to do that, but we also need to think about, you know, how to stabilize, you know, the economies of other parts of the world where a lot of the immigrants are coming from because they just can't live there and they're going to come. Sort of hard to pick and choose. Yeah, well, I mean, you have a policy. Want, right? I mean, look at Canada. They have a great, you know, kind of a system where that's based on points and different skills and family and so forth and so on. And you can change the weights. And But yeah, there's there's rational ways of doing it. Uh, so it's not 
easy, not completely straightforward, but it's certainly doable. Other countries, Canada would be kind of the prototype at this point, I would think, if we were trying to do immigration reform. Care to your thoughts? So, you know, I, I worry about economic growth because that's the be all end all. And, you know, our quality of life, Andrew, it changes, reduces at a very, very slow pace. So sometimes we don't notice it, but it is happening, right? We've all lived with a noticed inflation over the last two, three years. And quality of life is changing. It's reducing and it's going to continue to happen because of the GDP numbers I just shared with you. If we don't solve one of the two or both of the problems, number one, like there are going to be fewer working Americans per non-working American. That's a problem for economic growth. So first, let's solve that problem. That's where immigration comes in. And second, there are limits to how much we can solve that problem because of what you just said. You can't control what kind of immigration, so on and so forth. We also need to increase productivity per worker because there are just going to be fewer workers going forward. And that means, again, technological shocks. You know, we as economists know that's where majority of the economic growth has come from since the Industrial Revolution. And we need to, again, invest in our technology leadership, not just for economic growth and efficiency, but also for national security. I want to thank both of you for this fascinating discussion. I think given us an awful lot to think about. Mark, Kirti, thank you so much. So can I be king for a day? I'm just asking. Uh, I, I think so. Okay. Oh, I'm cool with that. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I would love to live in that world. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.